are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Scripture tonight is in Matthew chapter uh, 23. Matthew chapter 23. And I shall begin to read at verse uh, 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets, and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which kill the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous righteous Abel under the blood of Zacharias, son of Barakas, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. I would, but you would not. Ye will not come unto me that might have life, Jesus said in another place. One time when I had preached on the subject of hell, a lady came to me greatly disturbed. She said it was terrible, it was awful. I answered, yes, ma'am. Hell is an awful place. But she said the idea of your preaching a sermon like that. Why, Jesus preached Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek and blessed are they that mourn. I answered, yes, ma'am. Have you read the entire sermon from which you're quoting? Oh, she said, I've read all of the Beatitudes. But I asked, have you read the entire sermon on the mount? Have you read the part where Jesus said, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is better for thee in a life with one eye than having two eyes be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. And if thy right foot offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter a halt into life than having two feet be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. And if thy right hand defend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is better for thee to enter maimed into life than having two hands be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. Oh, the lady asked, did Jesus say that? He certainly did. That was his first sermon. Have you ever read his last sermon? Have you read how he stood in the temple, looked into the faces of hypocrites, 
and said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! How can you escape the damnation of hell? Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. Uh, Jesus Christ had more to say about hell than any other character in the Word of God. If you were to take the Bible and tire it every page, has anything about the retribution for sin upon it, you wouldn't have much Bible left. Sometimes people don't like evangelists because they sometimes tell deathbed stories. Jesus went beyond the deathbed. He talked about a rich man who lifted up his eyes in hell, being in torment. And he seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cries and saith, Father Abraham, send Lazarus that he might dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Jesus preached that. Love incarnate preached hell. He said, These shall go away in the everlasting righteousness, in the everlasting punishment, but the righteous in the life eternal. There's a sickly sentimentalism over this world. A lot of people say that a God of love will not allow sinners to go to hell. I suppose they think they know more about the love of God than he whose heart burst with love as he hanged on a cross. I suppose they think they know more about the nature of God than he who is very God of very God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus preached hell. And he didn't apologize for preaching it. Now I know that the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that when Jesus used the word, spoke of hell, he used the Greek word Gienna, and so he did on at least one occasion. But his remarks about hell were not confined to the Greek word Gienna. Gienna we call it in the English. Gay Hinnom is the Hebrew, the valley of Hinnom. It was a valley south of Jerusalem. It is a valley. You may see it there today. A yawning chasm down south of Mount Zion. And back in the days before Josiah became king in Jerusalem, the ancients worshipped the god Molech in that valley. They practiced the most abominable cer ceremonies imaginable. They even practiced prostitution as a religious ceremony. And little babies born as a result of these orgies were sacrificed to the god Molech. They had a great bronze image. They kept it heated almost white hot. They would pull a lever, its mouth would open. They'd throw little babies inside and burn them. They used to beat drums out there in the valley to drown the cry of burning babes. The valley was also called Tophet, from to Toph, meaning a drum. And when Josiah became king in Jerusalem, under the influence of a certain prophet, for he was only eight years of age, he had the temple renovated. They discovered of all things the law of the Lord, the books of Moses. And uh, there, there, under the influence of the prophet, uh, there was a public reading of the law. It brought revival. And in the wake of revival, Josiah's reformation. They tore down the high places of Baal, and they turned the valley of Hinnom into the city dumping grounds. They destroyed the worship of Molech in that place, and they used to throw the bodies of animals out there in the valley, and they had cast out the bodies of malefactors in the sewers of Jerusalem, emptied their filthy contents into the valley. So they kept a fire out there to destroy the filth. And uh, it was only natural, according to the law of language, that that valley should become a symbol of everything that's heinous and abominable and bad. So it was only natural, according to the law of language, it should become a symbol of hell. And in the intertestament period, the Jews began to use that figure of speech. When they spoke of Hades, they used the Greek word Gienna. That was a figure. And Josephus, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, wrote a dissertation on Hades 
in which he tells us that the Jews employed that figure of speech when they were talking about Hades. And when Christ was here, at least on one occasion, he used the well-known figure when he was talking about hell or Hades. But the fact that he used figurative language does not abolish Hades any more than the fact that he used paradise when he was talking about heaven or the place of the blessed would do away with heaven. Paradise was originally a garden in Persia. And apparative reasoning would lead us to the conclusion, if there is no hell, there is no heaven. But Jesus did not confine his remarks about hell to the Greek word Ghana. He also used the word Hades and described the suffering of that rich man who lifted up his eyes in Hades. And he cried out and said, send Lazarus. And when Abraham said, there's a gulf fixed and Lazarus cannot come to you and you cannot come here. Then he said, I have five brothers who are lost. Send Lazarus back. Tell my brothers not to come here. Did you ever hear anybody say, if I go to hell, I'll have plenty of company? You'll not want it when you get to hell. That man said, don't let my brothers come down here. Perhaps his influence would have helped to bring them there. And he didn't want that to add to his misery. But he didn't want the company of his brothers in hell. You know what Abraham told him? He said, they've got the Bible. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. And he was not talking about Moses as a man, the prophets as men, for Moses and the prophets were not contemporary. Moses was a prophet, and there were prophets in Moses' day, but when he used the plural prophets, he had reference to the writing prophets. On my Bible, I have Holy Bible. You have that on your Bible. But if this were in Hebrew Bible... Just the Old Testament, it would have Hatorah wa Nevim the law and the prophets and the writings, or it may have, and I've seen them with this on them, Moshe wa Nevim, Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament, and if they'll not believe the Old Testament, they will not believe if a man comes back from paradise and preaches. Friend, you'll believe the Bible will be damned. I could give you many reasons. I know that this book is the word of God. But the human heart witnesses to the fact. And the Holy Spirit witnesses to the fact. And you deliberately turn from the light of God's word. And are responsible for your darkness. Jesus preached hell. Hell's an awful place. But after he had preached it, with a broken heart, tears coursing down his cheeks, he opened his arms and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have received you, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. But you would not. I would. You would not. You ask if I believe in the sovereignty of God, divine election? Yes. You ask if I believe in the will of man? Yes. How do you reconcile them? I don't. Don't have to. I look over the door, see the sign, whosoever will may come. I walk through there. I turn around, look over the door, see the sign, elect from the foundation of the world. 
That electing is God's business. I don't understand it. I'm willing to let God have some secrets. I used to be able to tell you all about it when I was about 22 years old. But I can't. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus said, I would, but you would not. Ye will not come that you might have life. People who go to hell insist on going. They climb to hell. When you were a little child, you went to Sunday school. And you went home with a card in your hand. A card about that size. And on the card was a picture of Jesus. Underneath were the words, Suffer little children and come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he was receiving little children. The next Sunday, there was a picture of the Savior on a cross. And underneath was the golden text of the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You climbed over these good influences. It was not easy for you to climb. Your feet were tender. And you climbed over these, this mountain of good influence. Your mind was impressionable. And you went on without God. No, thank God some of you came to Jesus at the first opportunity. I do not believe that there must be a gap in the life of an individual after he reaches a time of accountability before he may accept Christ as his Savior. And that time of accountability is not always the same age in the life of a child. Some children understand more than others earlier than the others do. And I believe that as soon as a little child knows that he is a sinner and needs Christ, he can be saved. He can trust Jesus and be born again, even as he becomes accountable to God. So there will not be a period in his life when he must arbitrarily go to hell. Where this idea came from that a child must be about 12 years of age before he's converted, I have no idea. It did not come from the Word of God. I told you the other night, little children are committing crimes at the age of 8, 9, and 10, and they need to be born again. They'll go to hell when they die if they're not saved. They need Christ. But some of you came to Jesus so long ago, you do not know when and where you passed out of death into life, and you don't have them where and when, so long as you know you're trusting Christ and you're a child of God. If you're trusting Jesus Christ to your Savior. You don't have to put your finger on the time and the place. Many of us know when and where we pass from death to life. But it may have happened so long ago in your life. But miss most of us climbed over those good influences and raced toward hell. And God said, I don't want that child to be lost. And he reared up this blessed book between you and hell. This mountain of sharp, two-edged rocks sharper than a two-edged sword. This impregnable rock of holy scriptures, as Gladstone called it. You've got to climb over the Bible to get to hell. I told you a while ago, you'll believe this book or be damned. I know it's the word of God. When I was a student in college, over 40 years ago, I received a letter from Charles Smith, who was the president of the American Association for the Advancement of Atheism. He said, we're going to wage the next battle on the south where they swallow the Bible whole. By 1940, he said, there will not be a Bible left in the United States. This is 1973, and here's a Bible. And if you'll find the book, the secular book that won the highest circulation in 1940, 
and multiply the total of its circulation by 20. That's the number of Bibles that were sold and circulated that year. And the Bible has outsold itself ever since 1940. And that's not due to the fact that the modernists put out their version, the RSV, the Revised Standard Perversion, a few years ago. The King James has outsold the RSV ever since it came from the press. This is the most popular book in the world. No book rivals it. One year, Das Kapital rivaled the Bible when they made an all-out push trying to put it in the hands of everybody in the world. But year after year after year after year, this blessed book outsells itself. Last eve, I paused beside the blacksmith shop and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Looking in upon the floor, I saw old hammers worn by beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, asked God, of wearing better all those hammers so? Just one, said he. And then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so thought I, the anvil of God's word for ages, skeptic blows have beat upon. And though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed and the hammer's gone. Where is the so-called higher criticism of 45 years ago? It's as dead as a doornail. The old modernism failed. It passed into what theologians call the crisis. And they had no voice of authority to lead the people. So they said, we've got to recapture that voice of authority. Even Fosdick wrote in his book, Successful Christian Living, page 163, the modernistic movement has watered down the thought of the divine, and may we be forgiven for this, left souls standing like the ancient Athenians before an altar to an unknown God. So they turned to neo-orthodoxy, which is the same old unbelief, the same old infidelity, the same old wolf. Wearing a new suit of sheep clothing. But that has worn out already. In these few short years. The hammer of new evangelicalism is wearing out. People see that this strategy has failed. And instead of winning the unbelieving world, evangelicals have begun to surrender and soften up their message. And some of them have turned to infidels. And the hammer of new evangelicalism wears out. And every hammer that's used in an effort to destroy this revelation of God will wear out. But not the word of God. This book will stand forever. The impregnable rock of holy scriptures. The tooth of time is gnawed upon it, but there it stands. Atheists have denied it, but there it stands. Skeptics have questioned it, but there it stands. Infidels have forsaken it, but there it stands. Modernism has watered it down, but there it stands. Neo-orthodoxy has diluted it, but there it stands. New evangelicalism has compromised with it, but there it stands. The Word of God. You've got to climb over it to get to hell. Oh, somebody says there are those who have never heard of the Word of God. They are without excuse. For when the heathen do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves. Their thoughts also the meanwhile accusing their conscience, accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. 
They're under the dispensation of conscience still. They've not heard the law. They've heard the law, they're condemned by the law, and it's not heard the law, they're condemned. And who knows but what if the heathen receives what light he has. He actually receives him who is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And on the basis of what Jesus did at Calvary's cross, God may save him. But somebody says, oh no, he cannot be saved without hearing. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing with the word of God. Where do you get that? Tenth chapter of Romans. Finish the quotation, please. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not all heard? Yes, verily. Their line has gone into all the earth and their words under the ends of the world. What's he talking about? He's quoting the 19th Psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no language in which thy words not heard. Thy line has gone into all the earth, thy words under the ends of the world. The heavens declare the glory of God. The invisible things of God from the creation of the world being, uh, are understood, being seen through the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, the heathen, without excuse. Because the tragedy is, the heathen turns from the flickering light he has. I say if he had received that light, he knows what God may save him, and I think God would give him more light. But he turns from that light, and he gropes in darkness, and he too is responsible for his darkness. And he's lost. So we must take the love story of the cross and woo him to Jesus. And there'll be heathen in hell if we don't reach them. But they'll be in hell without excuse. And if they're without excuse, you're without excuse, my friend. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the love story. And climbed over it. Men rush toward hell and God rears up mountains to keep them out. He reared up a mountain of prayer. If I had gone to hell, it had been in spite of the prayers of godly parents. My father went home to God many years ago. We gathered around his bed. He began to pray for my older brother. After I was converted, I prayed seven years for my brother Lou, and God sent me 2,000 miles to lead him to Christ. But he backslid. He began to hit the bottle. He was saved. My father was dying said, let's pray. My younger brother prayed. I prayed. Lou turned from the bedside and my father began to pray. He said, oh God, please save my boy. If he's not saved, if he is, please bring him back to thee. Oh God, he said, I'd be willing to go to hell for him. But Jesus died for him. God saved him. I went over and put my arm around him and said, Lou, he's praying for you. And Lou turned, went back and fell on his knees and put his arm around my father and said, Dad, I love the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm coming back to Him. That was more than a quarter of a century ago. My brother Lou lived for God for over 25 years. Went home to God just a year ago this week. I stood by his bedside, and he said, I've seen the door of heaven open three times. He said, the brightest light I ever saw, and down there is a dark abyss. But he said, I'm going through that door. And I said, yes, Lou, when we were little, I was your tag-along. We went our separate ways when we got to be teenagers, but I said, I'm still tagging along. He said, we'll be waiting for you. I'll get Dad. 
mother. Ain't never loved him. We just stood inside the eastern gate. And I would have had to climb over the prayers of a godly father and mother. Mother was dying some ten years later. We stood at her bedside, and mother said, There's so many of them. I asked so many what, mother? She said, So many flowers. There were flowers in the room, but she was not looking at them. She was on a high hospital bed. They were on low tables. I said, Yes, there are a lot of flowers. And she said, Aren't they beautiful? I said, Yes, mother, they are very beautiful. She said, Aren't there so many angels? She did not see the flowers, and I didn't see the angels. But she said, I said, yes, mother, there are a lot of angels. I knew there were a lot of angels there. She said, aren't the walls beautiful? I looked at those old gray hospital walls. I didn't see anything very beautiful about them. But I knew that she was looking at jasper walls. I said, yes, mother, the walls are beautiful. She closed her eyes and woke up on the other side of those jasper walls. Among the treasured pictures... I have hung on memory's wall. There's one that's dearer than the rest and sweeter far than all. Tis a picture of my mother when I, a little chap, was folded in her loving arms to slumber on her lap. I felt her hand caress my head. I heard her softly say, Dear Jesus, take this little life and use it every day. There must have been a mighty weight behind that simple prayer. For through the seasons, year on year, that picture lingers there. And whether I'm on hill, the plain, or on the deep blue sea, the memory of that sacred scene forever comforts me. Among the treasured pictures, I have hung on memory's wall. My mother's supplication is the dearest of them all. She prayed me into the arms of Jesus, my father. They prayed me into the arms of Jesus. I was converted one Sunday morning teaching a Sunday school class. I did not know it for some time after that. But my parents spent all night in prayer the night before I was saved, without sleep, praying all night that God would save their boy. And if I'd gone to hell, it would have been in spite of that. And I'm talking to somebody who has climbed over the prayers of mother and father and raced on toward hell. And somebody says, I did not have praying parents. My parents were not saved. Well, maybe a child is praying for you. Maybe it's your own child. The greatest revival I ever saw came when a little girl got in her father's lap, put her arms around her, his neck and said, Daddy, Brother Parker said little children could win their daddies to Jesus. She said, I've been praying that you'll trust Jesus. And that night that man came down the aisle. He was a big stone that caused an avalanche. I saw 700 people come to Jesus Christ. We extended meetings four weeks, and they came night after night. 700 souls were saved. That little girl prayed her father into the arms of Jesus. You say, I had Christian parents, but they're now gone to heaven. It's too late. No, it's not too late. God has not forgot their prayers. He keeps them in golden vials down under his throne. The times he opens those vials and the sweet odors that come to his nostrils are the prayers of saints. Don't climb over those prayers. Turn to Jesus. But people climb over these things. They rush on toward hell. God has reared up the church. The local church with its commission to evangelize. 
and the organism composed of all twice-born people. The testimony of the saints. You've got to climb over this. Even the old shell of a building with its fire pointing toward heaven reminds you that God established the church that people might be saved. People go over these things and down through valleys between the mountains. Sometimes their depression's financial. Many a man turned to God in the Great Depression. It may take a depression to bring America back to her knees. Many a man was converted during the war. For some 12 years, I served as director of religious activities at Bob Jones University several years of that time as assistant to the president, Dr. Bob Jones Jr., by the way. And his father was the president, and he was the acting president. I was assistant to the acting president, and then he became president, assistant to the president of the university. Well, that famous preacher's class for 12 years had 165 men in the class the first year I was there, 1937. The last year I was there, 1949, we had 1,200. But I saw the class double in 1945 when the war was over. They came from the battlefields. Men converted in foxholes as the orchestra of hell played over their heads. Saved out on the high seas as kamikazes died at their ships they surrendered to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're preaching the gospel around the world. Everywhere I go, I run into them. I see them all over the world. Sometimes it's a valley of danger. Or it may be a valley of sorrow. Down in Pensacola years ago, a man came, a young woman came forward. Not such a young woman either. She was had a boy 11 years of age. She said, my husband's not saved. And she said, I came tonight to rededicate my life to God. She said, I've been away from God. I let my husband get me away. I've been going with him to places nobody ought to go, let alone a child of God. But she said, I'm rededicating my life to God, and I have some boys. I want to bring them up in a Christian home. Pray for my husband. I hear that plea all over the world. Pray for my husband. He's not saved. We have children. Pray for my wife. She's not a Christian. We have children. We need a Christian home. What must one be thinking of to accept the responsibility of parenthood without God? To damn little children. Bring them into the world and set a godless example before them. But we prayed together for that man. The next Sunday afternoon, I came through the lobby of the San Carlos Hotel and was paged. I was requested to come to a certain address. It was 9.30 that night when I got there. There was a crepe on the door. A crowd of people on the porch. I went into the living room, some people in there, and I cast it. In the casket was the body of that little woman. I stood there thanking God that she was ready. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. We sorrow not as those who have no hope. I heard somebody sob and I turned around and sat down with a man. I said, I'm, I'm so sorry. I wish I knew what to say to you. But I'm glad to tell you that Jesus cares. He sobbed and said, yes, I know. Well, I said, you're not a Christian, are you? He said, no, but she was. I said, she was praying for you. He said, I know it. I said, why don't you trust Jesus? He said, I've been thinking about it. Will you do it? He said, not tonight. I said, you have some boys, don't you? Yes. How old are they? One is 11, the other's nine. Oh, I said, they need a Christian dad. They needed one all the time, but now that their mother's gone, 
how they need a Christian father. Will you do it? He said, not tonight. And then I said, I don't know, but I believe God will tell her about it. Will you do it? He said, not now. Then I said, have you thought about it? It may be that God took her to bring you to the realization that you need God. And he cried out. He said, I know it. He said, yes, I know. I asked, will you do it? He said, not tonight. He said, preacher, would you conduct the funeral? I said, of course, but I want you to be saved. He said, we want to have a little service here at the home at 9.30 tomorrow morning. Then we're going 40 miles north of here. Near the Alabama state line up near Flomerton, Alabama for the interment. And we want the main service there at the graveside. After the interment, I walked with that man to the gate of the old country cemetery and pleaded with him. He said, we'll be at the service tonight. He came, his two boys with him. I saw them out there. And I preached. They listened to everything I said. And I gave the invitation. People came forward. They did not come. At the close of the service, they came and thanked me for my kindness. And I asked the man, will you do it now? Will you trust Jesus? He said, we'll come back some other time. But I said, God has spoken to you. Will you do it? Won't you do it tonight? He said, some other time. I said, what about it, boys? Would, would you like to know your mother's Savior? They looked at their father and they looked at me. And I said, come on and trust your mother's Savior. Trust Jesus. He died for you, boys. You need him. And then pray for your father that he'll do it. They looked at their father and they looked at me. And he said, we'll come back some other time. And they went out. And I said, wait just a minute. Let's. He said, we'll come back. And on out a long aisle and out into the night out without God. I was back down in... Pensacola some few years ago with Dolphus Price. He had nine fundamental Baptist churches organized in a three-week campaign in the National Guard Armory. And I preached there for three weeks. I inquired about that man. He's an old man now and the boys are grown. They're without God. They've moved away. They went down into a dark valley. They walked over a casket. They trampled over the shroud of a little wife and mother. They were determined to go on in their own way. The old man said, I know that this happened to bring me to God, but not tonight, not now. And unless he turns to Jesus soon, he'll go to hell. And he'll rise up in a lake of fire and cry out, God is love. He called and I refused. He flagged my train, but I would not stop. Jesus said, you won't come. I would. You won't stop. You won't come. But you might have life. And you may not have to go through that experience, but there's one mountain I know you'll climb if you go to hell. It's not a very high mountain, but it's a rugged one. Looking at it from one vantage point, it looks like the face of a skull. Caves forming eye sockets. And on the brow of that skull, there's an old rugged cross. On that cross, there's a bleeding Savior. No, thank God, he's on no cross, but he died on the cross. He's in no tomb, but he died and rose again. But if you go to heaven, you'll go by the way of the cross. I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. But friend, if you go to hell, you'll go by the way of the cross. You'll go over the cross. You'll step on the heart of the Savior. 
you'll trample in the sacred blood of Jesus who said, I would receive you, but you won't come. In Greenville, South Carolina, where I made my home for some years, a girl killed her father, shot him with a gun. I've known young people to kill their parents unintentionally. I've known boys to reach out with one hand, get the heart strings of a Christian mother, and the other hand, the gray hairs of an old father, and drag them down to an earthly grave. So it was. A boy worried his mother to death for the life he lived. The doctor said worry killed her. The night after the funeral, the old man sat in front of a little open fireplace. It was in the early fall. The young man started out for an engagement, and the old man said, Son, where are you going? said, Dad, I've got a date. I'm going out. Old man said, Son, you're not going to leave me tonight. I wanted to talk to you, son. We just buried your mother. He said, Dad, don't be silly now. Mother's gone. There's nothing we can do. He said, I'll see you in the morning. Cheer up. I, I'm going out. The old man said, Son, you, you must not go tonight. I won't allow you to go. He said, oh, Dad, don't be foolish. The old man walked over and laid his shoulder on the boy's, his hand on the boy's shoulder and said, Son, you're not going through this door. You're going to stay here. Young fellow stepped back and said, Get out of the way, Dad. I'm going out. The old man said, Not through this door. He turned and started to go out another door. The old fellow said, Son, you're not going out tonight. I refuse to let you go. He said, Get out of the way. There was a little struggle. The old man fell down on the floor. The young fellow stepped back, started to turn and go out a side door. Then with a curse on his lips, he walked over the body of his old father. Went out to spend the night in sin. You say he was a heartless wretch. He was. But listen, friend. If you go to hell, you'll walk over the crucified body of the Son of God who cried, How oh, I would receive you. But you would not. Why will you climb into hell? He's able to save unto the uttermost. All who come unto God by him. This may be somebody's last step tonight. Turn. Turn. Why will you die? God, your maker, ask you why. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust.